Welcome to the Fan Experience, a Phoenix Rising supporters podcast. Stick around for interviews, analysis, fan stories, and our love affair with Phoenix Rising. And now to kick things off is your host, Niall McCarthy. Rising family, the 2022 USL Championship season is close. Before you know it, we'll have the jersey reveal. More key players will be announced, the schedule will be set, our supporters groups will be working on their TIFOs, we'll be losing our voices at the stadium, Phoenix Rising will be top of the Western Conference and life will be normal. Life will be brilliant, that's the Phoenix Rising normal. Until then, there are three games to watch out for this month. On January 20th, Jamaica play Peru in an international friendly. There were at least three former Phoenix Rising players that got the call-up for the reggae boys. Damien Lowe, Peter Lee Vassell and our very own Kev Lambert. The other two games are US Men's National Team World Cup qualifiers. The US takes on El Salvador on January 27th and Canada on January 30th. That will be a fun one. As far as our league goes, the USL Championship, we're back to a two-conference system, the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference. We'll see 14 teams compete in the Eastern Conference and 13 in the Western Conference. That's 27 teams, down from 31 teams last year and 35 teams in 2020. The league is shrinking and there are two reasons. The first is because teams are taking a year off. Oklahoma City Energy FC are taking a break for stadium renovations and Austin Bold FC under new owners are taking time out to relocate their team to another city. The second reason is that several MLS2 teams are leaving to join MLS Next Pro, a league that hopes to play in Division 3 but is currently unsanctioned as a Division 3 league in the US soccer pyramid. to see the league shrinking and it's likely to shrink again next year with all the remaining MLS 2 sides including Los Dos leaving for MLS Next Pro. There is a silver lining however, the USL Championship League is bringing on two new teams for 2022, Monterey Bay FC from Northern California and Detroit City FC from Michigan, the part of Michigan that lies north of Canada, weird but true, cross the Detroit River and you're south of the USA in the city of Windsor, Ontario. These two new teams, Monterey Bay FC and Detroit City FC, have each taken a different pathway to get to the USL Championship. Monterey Bay FC is a reincarnation of Fresno FC, a team that some of you remember when they played in the USL in 2018 and 2019. They changed location and changed their name, but in the eyes of the USL headquarters, it's the same team, as it's the same franchise with the same owner. Weird, but true. The head coach at Monterey Bay FC is Frank Yallop, a former coach with the Canadian national team. He's coached several MLS teams and he was even the coach of Phoenix Rising in 2016 and 2017. Detroit City FC have taken a different route to the USL Championship. They came from NISA, a league that plays in the third division of the US soccer pyramid. Just in case you're new to this, MLS is in the first division, USL Championship is in the second division, and in the third division is NISA and USL League One. Not confusing at all. 
So with the move from Nisa to USL, does that mean that the team was promoted from Division 3 to Division 2? The answer is no, simply because we don't have promotion relegation in US soccer. But this is probably the nearest you're going to get to it, at least in the foreseeable future. Detroit City FC isn't the only team to move from Nisa to USL in recent years. They joined Miami FC, who made the jump in 2020, and Oakland Roots SC, who followed suit in 2021. Our guest on the show today is Alex Wright, one of the owners and founders of Detroit City FC, and he's here to talk about his team. A team that a lot of people have been raving about, not just in recent months, but in recent years, and he explains why. They have fans throughout the country, as many supporters attending their games as Phoenix Rising, and they have a fair amount of success on the field too. The story of Detroit City FC is an incredible story about how four friends each invested $2,700. You heard that right, they invested not $2,700,000, but $2,700 to start their club, which they brought from an amateur league playing in a high school pitch to their own stadium playing in front of thousands in a professional league. There are similarities between the clubs. Just like Phoenix Rising, Detroit City has major league sports in their backyards too. And both clubs have to try to be special, have to offer something different and have to find unique ways to engage with us, their audience, their supporters, their fan base. So why should we care about Detroit City FC? Number one, because we're curious. Curious about what we can learn from them. Curious about why they consistently sell out their stadiums. Curious about why their fans are so engaged and curious about what they do that we don't and maybe should. Number two, we might see them on the pitch in the coming season, either in interconference matchups or in the cup final. So it's good to know who our opponents are. In this interview, you might find something inspiring in the Detroit City FC story. Something that will change how you will support your local soccer team. I did, and it involves drinking beer. Here's my conversation with Alex Wright, founder and co-owner of Detroit City FC. Enjoy. This is Rick Schantz, the head coach of Phoenix Rising, and you're listening to The Fan Experience. Alex, thank you so much for joining us today. Give us a little bit of a history lesson about the club. I understand that it started in 2010 under the name Detroit City Football League, a co-ed recreational league with over a thousand players. I'm reading that from Wikipedia. Does that ring any bells? And did you play on any of those teams? Yes, myself and three of the founding members of DCFC played on a neighborhood team called the Corktown Pheasants and our cross neighborhood rival um, from Hubbard Farms, which is another neighborhood in Detroit, um, played for uh, that team. And the five of us over um, over the course of the summer, getting to know each other, hanging out at the local pubs after all the games. It certainly had nothing to do with the, our ability to play the game. Um, we got to talking that uh, the wild success of the co-ed league in town um, gave Sean Mann, our current CEO, and um, uh, was sort of the founding member of the league, this idea that if we just grabbed some of these folks, um, you know, and, and pitch them on the idea of coming to a minor league soccer game as well, that, you know, maybe we might be able to get something, something going along those lines as well. And uh, the rest is history. It certainly had nothing to do with my soccer ability. 
<laughs> so fast forward a little bit just to 2012 when the ownership group each kicking in $2,700 is my understanding that you joined the National Premier Soccer League. It's a, a, a pre-professional league, uh, but the intent was to move to the professional leagues. So take us back 2012. Um, did you guys hit the ground running? Did you have a lot of support right from the get go? Yeah. So coming on the heels of that uh, co-ed league, um, our goal, we ran the numbers and we sort of looked around our region at what was going on in minor league soccer at the time. And we figured that if we got a couple hundred friends and family to come to our first season in the MPSL, we'd be doing okay. We'd be able to break even. And then whatever happened, happened. And um, the first game, I think the attendance was 1,200. So um, within moments, we realized that um, not only did we have a potential business on our hands, we had a pretty big responsibility as well. Um, we tapped into something uh, much bigger than I think we had even imagined. Um, and that was that Detroit was ready for a soccer team that was playing downtown, that was community focused, that was um, looking to raise the city in a positive light as well as you know the game. Um, and the rest is history. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot in that phrase that <laughs> basically sure. just means hard work. <laughs> sure, sure. So 2012, you're you're playing at Castec High School, and that lasted for a few years until you reached out to the community to get some community investment, and you moved. You were able to generate some dollars and move into an 8,000 seat stadium. So that was in 2015. So that's a pretty that's a that's a, an exciting move to reach out to the community, and the community responded. And that wasn't the first time you, do, you did that. We'll talk about that again. But just tell us about that, about, about how that was received and just moving from the high tech, the, I'm sorry, Cast Tech High School to the new stadium. Sure. We, um, so we hit the ground running, but it took us a couple of years uh, playing at Cast Tech High School to, to get to capacity. Uh, we were turning people away at the gate after about two seasons, uh, three seasons. And that's really bad for business. Um, we also weren't able to control things like we weren't able to sell alcohol on site. We weren't able to, there's a lot we couldn't do, uh, because we were just sort of, um, renters and, you know, we were able to get in there a few hours before a kickoff and not really make the place our own. Um, so we started looking around for, for pitches that would accommodate our needs in downtown Detroit. There's plenty in the suburbs. Um, but we wanted to stay in the city and we found a old, uh, I think it's 90 year old now stadium called Hewer Stadium in Hamtramck, which is a city that's completely surrounded by the city of Detroit. It's literally in the city. Um, and it's a beautiful old venue, but it needed a little bit of love. It was kind of like Charlie Brown's Christmas tree. So it, 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 if Charlie Brown's Christmas tree needed like $750,000 of like concrete and <laughs> rebar to become um, safe to attend, um, so we had the vision. Uh, we could see something uh, that not many other folks in our community could, but we couldn't do it alone. So we tapped into our supporters for the first for the first time by leveraging a state of Michigan, a new state of Michigan law that allowed us to take on funding. So it sort of looked like a Kickstarter from the outside, but it was much more complicated than that. Um, in that it offered an actual return. Uh, we weren't sending you know, handmade pillowcases and CDs. We were, you know, we were sending back money 
um, that was tied to gate uh, revenue, ticket sales. Um, so we took it very seriously. We treated it like a business. We always have. And uh, we were able to bring in uh, three quarters of a million dollars in investment to fix up the stadium. And within a year of that campaign, we were able to play at our new, t- at our new field in Hamtramck, which is where we play now. Awesome. Okay, so the stadium started to fill up and you've grown to where you've got over 100,000 people attending your games every year now. So everything's going great and you're winning games left, right and center. I saw that you've got an 84% win or draw rate and then 2020 came along and here comes COVID and tell us what happened. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's funny. Uh, In many ways, we're still in that moment, right? And in many ways... um, the fact that we're just able to sit here and talk means that we didn't get the worst of this pandemic. And hopefully uh, we'll be around to, to have this communicate these conversations for a long time. Um, so it does feel strange to sort of talk about how we got through it because a lot of folks didn't, especially in our community. Um, but the fact was is uh, about three months into the, the pandemic becoming a real thing after we had canceled our season and most of the country was shut down. Uh, we were looking at the real possibility of our business just going away. Um, it's real tough to make money when you can't have events. Um, right. And uh, we looked at a lot of different options, uh, completely shutting our doors, you know, taking a break. Lots of teams did a lot of things to, to survive. And what we did was uh, we turned to what has always been our strength, and that's been our fan base and our supporter groups. Um, we shaved off uh, 10% of our club. Um, put it out there for investment. The uh, units started at $125. Uh, there was no limit to the amount of um, uh, how much an individual could invest. Um, but we were looking to raise uh, over a million dollars. We weren't sure how long that was going to take, um, but we just knew that it had to happen if we wanted to keep our doors open. Um, we did our best to, to communicate it to, you know, ring doorbells and and send out video campaigns and you name it and uh, but we didn't know how it was going to end um but once again our supporters did not let us down and it took us about three days to raise 1.5 million dollars and um the result was is that dcfc still exists we've continued to grow and now we have um nearly 3,000 co-owners that are participating members of of this club that have um, an even deeper connection to this club that they care so much about, um, which is evidence in the fact that they were there when we needed them most and probably a moment that most folks just, it wasn't your, it, it wasn't the easiest thing to do to be giving money at that moment in, in, 2000, in uh, 2020. Absolutely incredible. You said so many incredible things right there. First of all, uh, that the owner that you were offering ownership for $125 per unit. So a share costing $125. And this is in a time when people were having hard times, people getting laid off, but it only took you three days, almost 3,000 investors to, to get you to that almost one and a half million dollars. Just absolutely unbelievable. What a story. I'd like to switch directions just a little bit, Alex, and to to talk about what goes on in the field. So you've had great success. In 2019, you um, hired a new coach. It was Trevor James. Just like to make the connection with Phoenix Rising, our ownership group 
has a stake in Ipswich Town FC and your coach is a former Ipswich Town FC player who went on to be a, a, a scout for the club. And just doing a little bit of research on him, he scouted for SC Barcelona, for Newcastle, even for the England English national team. Um, so, you know, he's got a, he must have so many connections all over the world. He was an assistant coach for the LA Galaxy, um, along with coaching with, with Frank Yallop, who also coached Phoenix Rising, by the way. So um, exciting to have him there. And he's been a fantastic addition, um, leading you to, to quite a bit of success as you moved into your new league. So as you moved into to Nisa, so tell us about that transition and and how things went in that new league. Yeah, I mean, I, honestly, when when you're talking about Trevor James, I think the the biggest question to start with is why the heck did a classy guy like that agree to come coach a, an, a semi-pro team in Detroit run by five guys that met in a beer league? Um, we're... <laughs> We continue to, um, you know, uh, be just as fortunate as we are good, right? Um, Trevor James is a phenomenal leader. Um, he's a, he's a phen phenomenal evaluator of talent. He's a phenomenal um, coach and manager on the technical side. Um, and he is just, he's brought so much success to this organization. But to take you back to 2019, we were in a situation where, um, our coach who had always been our coach after the first season, uh, Ben Pierman, who's now the coach in Memphis. Um, so we're looking forward to be playing him uh, at least twice a year. Uh, that should be a blast. Um, he, he left to, to take that, that uh, assistant coaching job in, in Memphis. And we were looking um, for, for someone to step in that had uh, the exact kind of resume that Trevor James did. We, you know, we were, we were looking for someone who, who understood the game, understood not only you know, the talent you would need to, to, to take a team from amateur to pro, but also you know, the, the, the things you needed to know to convince the right guys to come. Um, you know, Detroit is the, I think we're gonna be the northernmost team in the, in the league. Um, we are downtown and we're, you know, we're, we're not ashamed of the fact that it's a blue collar city. You know, it's not uh, it's not the Hollywood Hills, right? When you come to play here, so um, we have to create something to get to get guys to buy in. And Trevor James is the guy who knows how to do that on and off the pitch. Um, and he's built a team from numerous times, from amateur to pro. Um, so in every way, we got really fortunate. And I'm not sure that you can argue with uh, his results on the pitch. Right, and I'd love to talk about that. What was the outcome in the 2020 championship in the in Nisa? Right. So uh, the easiest way for me to remember it is that every tournament or uh, season we played, whether it was shortened or full length, we just won them all. So <laughs> that's sort of the shorthand. Uh, we played um, a couple preseason tournaments. We played a shortened um, spring season. Then we played a fall spring um, season as well. It gets a bit confusing because of COVID didn't, didn't make uh, it easy to, there's no short, uh, easy answers for all these seasons and what they turned out with, but we just won them all. Um, and in 20, th this season that just ended, we won both the, basically both the spring and the fall uh, championships um, with, with, I think two or three games to spare, we won the last fall game. So really in any other country, um, in any other system, we would have just naturally moved up, right? Um, we had to, 
figure that out off the pitch. But as far as the team that we have, we think that it's it's done everything it needed to do to move up to the next level. Right. Amazing. I'd love to hear about some of your rivalries. I've heard of this thing called the Rust Belt Derby. <laughs> so is that a thing? And is it going to continue as you move to the new league? Yeah. Uh, well, whether it continues is up to our supporters. We've um, One of the lessons we learned early on is that we leave uh, derbies to our supporters. We, um, I'm not sure that the club has ever self- gloss their own derby right like we leave that to our uh, most dedicated supporters and they kind of build that stuff out and um we just sort of hold on for dear life and just try to win the games that that are that much more important the rust belt derby came when we were um in mpsl and it was uh cleveland erie and buffalo which were um you know great great lake cities and we all played each other and the winner of that got this sort of like welded iron trophy to take home that um, like a Detroit artisan had made. It, it was like the heaviest trophy um, in the history of amateur soccer in America for sure. Um, but that's something that, you know, perhaps it will, that's come and gone over the course of the years, right? Because it depends on who you can play and division, divisions change and, um We'll see how that goes. We'll see what I'm, I'm also really excited to see what evolves out of our new move. You know, what um, I'm really excited to play, not just the, the local teams. I love that we can go to, to Pittsburgh and Louisville and Memphis. These are bus rides, Indianapolis are bus rides. Um, but the, the teams that we get to play across the country, I think are going to be um, a potential to not only to have some great rivalries on the, on the pitch, but, I think finally our um, supporters are going to be, um, they're going to have like legitimate large groups across the pitch from them yelling back just as loudly. And um, I think it's going to be a great stage in our, in our evolution to see what happens as a result. Yeah, for sure. It's a huge thing for you guys to be moving to the USL, moving from NISA, which is an independent league. So my understanding is that you're going to gain national, maybe even international exposure, maybe higher levels of competition, increased attendance, increased revenue. But what do you give up leaving an independent organization like NISA? Um, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, we wouldn't have moved forward into this uh, position if we didn't think that um, we were leaving anything behind that defined who we were and who we are and our values. We're always been an organization that has, you know, we've been led by our values. Um, and in the conversation of moving forward into USL championship, um, these were values forward conversations. <laughs> we wanted to make sure that, um, I mean, our success is dependent on our ability to, um, to continue to be the club that folks um, want us to be. Um, we wanna uh, be the team that our grandparents, our grandkids support. You know, we want this club to outlive all of us. And we can't do that by giving up anything that's essential to our success. Um, sports are too fragile. Fandom is too fragile. There's too many options. There's too many other things that you can do. I mean, a pandemic has taught us all that there's uh, parks and trails, right? Like there's all these things you can do outside without even paying money. Um, you know, so 
think about uh, think about what we have to do to make sure we stay true to our values, um, but also grow and, like you said, um, expose our club to a larger a larger audience. Um, I don't look at it as what we had to stop being. Um, it's really been so much about like how many more doors this move has opened. Fantastic. You mentioned values and I read up that, that one of your milestones is when you became the first American sports team, not just soccer team, but the first American sports team to wear a uniform in support of LGBTQ inclusion in a regulation match. And that was all the way back in 2014. You know, fast forward and now we have t periods of the year that are dedicated to pride but you guys you know kicked it off and that was that was pretty incredible back in 2014 so um i, I don't know if, if that came about because of supporters groups or if that was a decision from the leadership of the club and just want to give a shout out as well to, as when we're talking about supporters to the national the northern guard supporters group that are really strong for you guys yeah i, I think that um well, well, first of all, the, the, the match that you're talking about, when, we, when, when the guys took to the pitch wearing a, uh, a jersey that was specifically, uh, and in that time it was um, specifically dedicated to promoting and supporting marriage equality. Um, we, uh, because we were a small organization and we're a group at the time, there was five of us that were sort of making all the decisions. It really allowed us to streamline those kind of those kind of decisions. Basically, as long as the five guys in the room thought it was a good idea, um, things got done. Um, I'm not sure if larger organizations are able to move that nimbly about anything, let alone something um, that could be perceived as controversial, although none of us thought that was controversial. Um, but we, we, we weren't like doing this in a vacuum and we weren't 100% sure how it would be received until about 30 seconds into the game when, you know, the, after the kickoff, the entire supporter section exploded in rainbow colored smoke. You know, um, Detroit City FC is extremely fortunate in that there is, um, a, a really beautiful uh, relationship between the values of our supporters and the values of the club. Um, I think that it's something that, you know, we're not just accessible as people. Like if you come up to our bar, you can see half of the team and half of the front office. Um, I think we understand that this is a game that at its best, it's something that can be played by everyone, that is for everyone, that excludes no one. Um, and we choose to align ourselves with organizations that just really spend a lot of time reminding us that that's how we should all live our lives. Um, the marriage equality uh, jersey game, pride game was a really good example of that, but it's something that we've tried to, to circle back on in every way. Um, as we grow the game and, and promote the game in the city, um, there's a lot that we can do by leveraging our, our existence as a, as a sporting team to, to help make our community just a more positive and, and, and healthy place to live. Alex, my ears perked up there when you talked about owning a bar. <laughs> So our general manager, I'm just going to send this directly to our general manager, Bobby Dooley, <laughs> the idea of owning a bar. So tell us about that. 
so we moved in. Did, one of the the threads of Detroit City FC is that um, we see uh, potential in buildings that um, in the city of Detroit people have driven by for years or decades and just been like, yeah, that's a boarded up building. Um, and there's a lot of those in Detroit. So like, you know, it's it's not an uncommon way to see the, to see the city. But um, we uh, leased for uh, recently a, a barn, uh, an old ice barn that used to be where the Red Wings practiced up until maybe like 2014, 2015. So it had two hockey rinks that we turned into turf fields. One is boarded, one is non-boarded. And because it's two rinks, there's a space in between where there is a raised area that looks down on both fields. And we converted that into a, um, a soccer bar. Um, and it's where all of our team hardware exists. The, the players and front office, our offices are in that space. So during the season, the players have breakfast and lunch in that area. Um, it's where we have our owners meetings. Um, it's truly a social club built around our team culture and identity. Um, I think it, it, that's much more common for maybe folks in, in England or Europe um, that have a, that grew up with a club that had sort of a home base that was more than just a pitch. It was a, it was a place you'd hang out. You know, um, it was a place where kids and grandpas could come together and, and you know, grandpa would have a pint and the kid would watch the game or maybe just be running around. Um, that's what we've built. And um, it's really one of the most important things of our team culture is that we have this place to call home um, because it's, it's tough to just sit around and tell people what you're about. But when you walk into the Detroit City Fieldhouse or the City Clubhouse, which is the bar, um, what we're all about is, is everywhere you look. That is such an amazing story. I absolutely love it. Getting more serious for a second, um, have you maintained a similar roster? Like are players coming back to play year after year? And, and how, many ex how many players are you expecting to return for the 2022 season? Great questions. And um, this is one of the few areas in which even though I'm a founder and an owner, I am not that much more privileged than the average supporter with this stuff. Um, we talked about Trevor James earlier in the conversation and and the technical side of Detroit City FC is his and his alone. Um, as much as I'd like to say that I have some sort of like direct line to the uh, to the coaching office where I can just like make calls or send like YouTube videos of guys and be like, sign him, that's not the case. Um, uh, we have had like, we do keep in touch uh, and talk regularly about how um, the roster is coming along. We haven't made any announcements yet. Um, and I look forward to us being able to do that in the near future. But I think that the quality of the club that Trevor pulled together last year, I, I would not be surprised if a, if a handful, if not more guys do carry on into the, into the championship side. I'm hopeful that they do. We have a couple guys that have played for our club for years. And I think, you know, as the chief creative guy on the team, there's nothing, you know, I, I see everything we do in terms of story. And there's no better story to tell than the fact that there's a chance that we've got a couple of guys that that are on this team, one of which, you know, was in the first starting 11 of the first game at Cast Tech in 2012 that could possibly be playing for us this year. Um, it's a story that I don't think you could replicate really anywhere 
let alone in the American soccer landscape. So I wish, uh, I wish I had a ton of great like names and stuff for you, but I, I literally have none. I will be following our Twitter feed along with you and hopefully the rest of your listeners to see who DCFC signs. Maybe I'll know like 20 minutes before, before, before you all, but, <laughs> okay. but, but that's it. <laughs> I've noticed on the roster from in previous seasons, uh, one of your um, MVPs, and captain Stephen Carroll, that he's an Irishman like myself. So I just want to commend you guys for getting Irish players <laughs> on your team and would love to see more of those. But anyway, enough about <laughs> me. Um, finally, just one last question. Tell us about your mascot. So there's a little bit of a story there. Yeah. So um, our mascot is naturally a polar bear. Um, I don't think anyone can think of the city of Detroit without immediately thinking of a polar bear. So that part's pretty self-explanatory. But the the way we came across him is that um, this would have been in the cast tech era. So during our early years, uh, we were... Um, uh, we were all still fulfilling all of our merchandise at a friend's house. So the five of us that owned the club, we were, you know, so when we'd sell t-shirts, we'd all go over to one person's house and put all the t-shirts in a bag and then mail them. You know, that's the kind of company we were. Um, and the guy whose house we would do it at, he, he walked in one day with a uh, giant, uh, with a polar bear mascot suit that he had found in the trash. And um, it was love at first sight. You know, um, nothing, you, you know, because you, it's kind of a sensitive area, right? Like, you know, do you impose a, a mascot on your fan base? Do you let something like that evolve? You know, like who are, who are we to, to, pick a, to pick a mascot? We're Detroit City FC. It's not like baked into our name or anything like that. We were sort of resistant to that whole idea um, when we built out the identity. Um, but then this polar bear just sort of walks in um, and, you know, and the music stops and we, we kind of make eye contact and one of its eyes is sort of like falling out of its head and um, it was kind of dirty. Um, now it's even dirtier. And, and, and there's nothing, there was nothing we could do but think that this, this polar bear needs to be put in a quadruple X t-shirt, uh, not pants, and it should be free to run around uh, before and during DCFC games for as long as its little white fur holds together. Fantastic, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. In Phoenix, our call to arms is go rising. I don't know, is it Viva La Rouge? <laughs> we, well, actually, I think we, we screwed that up once. Well, we've sort of, you know, like there's, uh, there's Allez La Rouge, but um, I think any good Francophile would probably say we might even be using those words wrong. Um, <laughs> Detroit has a, it's a 300 year old city uh, that has roots far, far, far beyond that. Um, but obviously there was a large French presence. So we kind of, there's a Rouge River. Uh, there's a Rouge plant that build, a, a, you know, generations and generations of vehicles. Um, but really we just say, come and get it. <laughs> Come and get it. Love it. All right, Alex, it's been really great. I really enjoyed all your stories and, and I really understand why your club is a storied club. I had so much fun. And I was like telling my wife who was, you know, she's working from home with me and I'm like, hey, check this out. And she's like, I just got have to work. Let's talk about it later. I listened to the interview. <laughs> well, I'll tell Stephen that he's got a fan. He's from he's from Cork. 
and he's a uh, he's so am I. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you guys know each other? Uh, the, cla- uh-uh. the classic question, right? Do you know each other? <laughs> right, right. And Corktown, Corktown is a neighborhood in Detroit because um, so many of the immigrants in the turn of the century came from Cork to Detroit to work that there was actually an entire neighborhood of mostly like Irish immigrants that they called Corktown. And that neighborhood name stayed. And that's the neighborhood that three of the DCFC owners lived in when we started the club. And that was the name of our team. We were the Corktown Pheasants um, that we would play each other with. So there's a lot of a lot of Cork love in Detroit. That's really cool. Did he did he play with the club in Ireland before coming over to the US? He did. And he's gonna he's gonna be very disappointed that I have absolutely no idea what the club was. Okay, I'll have to look into but it. But I bet you if you looked him up, I bet you I bet you if you looked him up, it'd be pretty easy to to find because he's he's quite a player. He's one of the guys that I would I would hope and expect to see uh, carry on to the next, uh, to the, this year's club. Well, I need to take a, a summer vacation up there. And I've been wanting to get up there and I actually planned a route starting in New York City and just, you know, going to parts of the country that I've never, never been to. I've got cousins in Boston, cousins in New York, been there a dozen times. You know, I've been around a lot, but I've never been up to the Great Lakes area. So I'm thinking maybe this summer. You gotta come. Yeah, if, if you all if we all host you especially uh, but if you're going to come near detroit you just got to come on a dcfc especially as a, a as someone who who appreciates soccer culture um the march to the match that the supporters do through the neighborhood um that surrounds our stadium is probably one of if not the premier sporting experiences wow. that you can have you know when we're sold out and we've got seven or eight thousand people you know half of those people walk down the middle of the street in a neighborhood uh, as an immigrant neighborhood. Right. So the family, they're all, all in on soccer as well. And um, they're out in their porches and um, you know, like it's this, it's the, this crazy unexpected um, event bringing all these disparate folks together about one thing that they can all agree on is that soccer is pretty pretty fun sport to watch and then you take another left turn and then take another left turn and all of a sudden you're not in a neighborhood you're at the opening gates of a stadium um similar to like well that's not uncommon in in um ireland or in the i mean uh it's certainly not in england you know, to have these old stadiums in the middle of a neighborhood. Oh, you're absolutely right. In Ireland as well, our, our our biggest stadium is right in the heart of Dublin. You know. Yeah, yeah. We we um. I'm sort of a sidebar, but my wife and I, um, we we went to Ireland a few years ago when, of all things, Detroit City FC has this. I'm not sure if this came across in your research, but Detroit City FC has this relationship between Glen Torren and Belfast. Because in 1967, the original NASL brought over clubs, whole whole cloth clubs, to be the first professional team in the, the first professional soccer league in America. Wow! They couldn't find the they couldn't find the players in the states, so they imported entire teams. So the winners of their respective clubs and leagues across Europe. Um, were just brought over. So Stoke came over and they played in Cleveland. They were just called wow. like the Cleveland's, you know, uh, steamboats or something like that. The team that Detroit got was that year's Irish champion because this is 1967, right? Wow. The Irish champion that year was out of Belfast and they were called Glen Torren. 
it was like the one year that Glenn Torrin was, you know, obviously with, with all the troubles and everything, they just weren't able to, you know, they was never, they were never that big again, right? But that one year they came um, and they represented the city of Detroit as the Detroit Cougars. Uh, they played one year and then the, the boys flew back and that was that. They were never heard from again in the city of Detroit. No one ever has heard of the Cougars. And then we uncovered this story because we were coming up on the 30 year anniversary of this, this sort of historical moment. We called them and they're just like, holy cow, you guys are in Detroit. We love Detroit. You got to come out here. So we came to visit them. And this, this non-story in Detroit, we walk into their venue, which is called The Oval, okay, which is next to like a shipyard. It's Belfast, right? So it's next to a shipyard. And there's like, there's like World War II turrets. It's just, it's very, very like blue collar soccer in Europe vibe. And there is an entire mural on the side of the stadium dedicated to the Detroit Cougars. Wow. It's this massive team story that, um, you know, like it's this huge story. Every single one, every single fan of that team has heard of the Detroit Cougars and no one in our city had. So we brought them over. We brought that team over to play us at Keyworth. And we brought two of the boys who had gone when they were 19 in 1967. And it was one of the coolest um, historical moments in our club, um, as, as wild as it would be to have a Northern Irish um, sister team. Uh, the, that's the last thing we'd expect because most of the, yeah, like I said, most of the Detroit area folks are um, from Southern, you know, from the South of the Island, they're Cork and Dublin folks. Um, but it just became this phenomenal um, experience of the weekend. They were great folks. And when we went over there, we did a whole circuit of, of your, of your country. Oh my and gosh. We've wow. got a, we've got a lot of love for, for Ireland specifically. And then, you know, uh, the folks up in Belfast as well. So that's my, that's my Ireland story. The stories just keep on coming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're, we're fortunate that our city's got a lot of history. That's amazing. Well, I'm definitely going to schedule a trip up there and, and go to. Please do. Let me know if you do. Let yeah, me know if you do. Sure. We'll, we'll make sure you have a great time and I'll, I'll connect you with the supporters and we'll take you over to the field house and everything. Thank you so much. <laughs> All right. Really appreciate it, Alex. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today on the fan experience. And we look forward to having you back. You bet. Looking forward to it. And hopefully we see you all on the pitch as well. Thanks for your time. So long. Bye-bye. Anthony Shattuck with Los Bandidos, and you are listening to the Fan Experience. Phoenix Rising family, at the start of this show, I talked about drinking beer. That was a nod to what Alex shared with us about the pub that they opened as part of their team's facilities. How awesome would it be to have that set up with Phoenix Rising? It's common with sports clubs in Ireland, even with the smallest amateur clubs. It's a great way to engage the community, and I can only wish that it's something we'll see down the road. Fingers crossed. If you haven't listened to our interview with Phoenix Rising head coach Rick Shantz, check it out. It was released on December 21st, 2021 and is available wherever you got this podcast. Last week's show was a season roundup and next week we're going to have a segment about moving from the USL to MLS. I'm interviewing someone who knows about supporting a club that moved from the USL to MLS, so that's going to be interesting. Why do we care? Because that's exactly what Phoenix Rising owners are planning, to move us, Phoenix Rising, from the USL to the MLS. What's that move like for the fans? That's one of the things I hope to find out. I say hopefully because I haven't recorded the interview yet, so fingers crossed. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. Thank you, Juan Guerra, for serving as the Phoenix Rising assistant coach for the 2021 season, and good luck as the head coach with the Oakland Roots in 2022. On behalf of everyone who loves a good football story, thank you, Alex Wright, for coming on this show. And last but not least, thank you, everyone, for keeping this sense of community going throughout the offseason by sharing this podcast with a friend, by rating, reviewing, subscribing, and by following this podcast. We'd love to hear from you, so send your questions, thoughts, and ideas to the fanexperiencefc at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at fanexperiencefc, and the invitation is always there for you to come on this show and talk rising. I can't wait to lose my voice at the first game of the season. Who am I kidding? I'll probably lose it at one of our preseason games. Happy New Year, everyone. Go rising! Go rising!